So welcome to episode 2 of Mhandisi the Engineers Podcast. I'm your host Lorraine Newton and today's guest is Mr. Lumumba. Mr. Lumumba is a graduate engineer and is working with Huawei as a channel manager. Uh, Mr. Lumumba, please tell us more about who you are and what you currently do as a channel manager. Thank you. Thank you, Newton, for having me here as well as Okello behind the scenes. Happy to have met you today. Well, Newton, you say I'm a graduate engineer, you blunder. <laughs> I don't think you would, would classify me as such yet because um, that is that is pretty much still in the works. Nonetheless, as a channel service manager at Huawei, basically what I do is I focus on Huawei's enterprise business. And enterprise is a huge area of play, especially with regards to corporate. We're looking at what solutions in terms of technology work for different enterprises. We are living in the age of AI, we are living in the age of IoT, but even more specifically, we are living in the age of constant technological advancement in communication. So whether it's Wi-Fi, whether it's LTE networks, whether it's ad hoc networks and so on and so forth. And so my role is just trying to play around all those all those scenarios, even as far as data center and data center network, just trying to create, let's say, both a market, a feasible way to penetrate market scenarios and even over and above that to build solutions for those particular market scenarios in the enterprise um, scenario for Huawei. That sounds great. Uh, let, let me get you back to what you mentioned about you not being a graduate engineer. Not sure what you meant there, because uh, my understanding is you're registered with IEK. No, 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 no. You see, you can't be registered by IEK if you're not registered by EBK, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my application with EBK has been pending for a minute. Not anything against them really uh, which is probably the popular parlance for me really it's just there was a hitch in my application that i don't want to say i got lazy to follow up or i wasn't very intentional about but i need to fix that nonetheless i feel like honestly pretty much doing what any graduate engineer part principle would would be doing and also i feel like my activity both in the ebk and iek fields of play is is also i don't want to say notable but <laughs> visible so more or less i feel like i have credence there and i have a knowledge of what goes on in there and that i would feel as much a family of i mean as part of that family much as of course by nomenclature i shouldn't i shouldn't be shouldn't be called as one of their own yeah that's just to be clear so let's call a spade a spade so you are not a graduate engineer by the definition of the board yep and i think that's what comes out clear right <laughs> Yeah, that are not registered neither by EBK nor by IEK. Okay, okay. But yeah, you've mentioned about a few points as a channel manager, and, and, and I would wish that you give the audience some little light on that. Could you probably give us an example of a project that you've done? Let me just let me just talk about what I'm doing currently because I guess this is a, this is pretty public enough to be talked about. So I'm supporting the Kwanza project, the Kwanza DC project, and here you know there's a lot that goes into building a data center and even beyond that, building the platforms that that try on top of it. So for in, for instance, think about it this way: we are building the foundational infrastructure, right? In this case, we're talking about the foundational networks that will go into powering this data center. We're talking about the compute power, in this case, the storage 
servers, routers, and switches that go that go into that project. And then on top of that, we now need to internetwork these servers to form a foundation of what we call now the data center. So the data center basically is a bunch of servers, storage devices, and networks that are able to now allow you as an individual to communicate with the, the data center. And it's it's really important. I don't know, maybe I should begin from why do we even need a data center? It's really important to have a data center because this is essentially where we store data and even process it. So think of it this way. The main reason why we are having or we used to have latency issue or rather long response times when you were logging onto the internet or were trying to access at that time Facebook or Instagram or whichever other media you were trying to access, the reason why that was very, it the experience was very slow was not largely or almost always because of your internet. It was really because the points of communication were really far apart. In this case, they were across the ocean, across the Atlantic or across the Pacific or across the Mediterranean Sea, you know, either in Europe, USA, or, you know, wherever else. And why is that? It's because that's where the, you know, uh, major data centers were actually installed and built. And so th these were where the, the apps you are trying to access at that time were pretty much hosted. But now when you bring these data centers across those rivers and valleys to where you are, then it becomes easier for you to access that information because the distance traveled is cut in almost by almost 10x. Think, think of it this way. We know the speed of light is constant, but the distance that it has to travel is not constant, right? So when I have to travel across, for instance, the ocean, number one, there's a bunch of things that comes in that, that come in. And, and if you remember your electromagnetics and, and, and a bit of antenna theory, then stuff like number one, dispersion start, starts coming in. Electromagnetic waves, especially in this case, especially across the lights, visible light spectrum to microwave spectrum, they perform very poorly across water bodies. Number two, when you in include other objects like wood and other obstacles, they start dispersing these this, this signals. And then number two, when you factor in stuff like, of course, the technology at the time also wasn't very robust. So of course, now we're, we're talking about, we need to also maximize on power utility, the antennas that you're working with, the technology that you're working with, how how re how, how resilient and reliable is it uh, in, in with regards to the communication that you're trying to achieve. Now, one of the main ways to combat all that is by bringing services as close to the user as possible. It's pretty much why then we bring the data centers close to where the users are. And it's not an exercise in, you know, just sprouting data centers everywhere. It's really an exercise in actually being mindful of what experience do we want to really leave you as a user. Oh, it's a good example that you're using this platform. Uh, I don't know if you allow me to mention which one it is, but we are using a video conferencing platform nonetheless, or a meetup platform. And of course, partially, I'm not sure which data center we are connected to for this particular call. It's hard to tell, but you can be sure that this information, even as it comes from me going to getting to you, it has to bounce off a data center somewhere before it gets to you and vice versa. So if these data centers were put way so far across the ocean or way far in, in, in terms of geographical distance, it becomes very hard for that signal to go all the way and then still come back to you and then still you know have to go back and forth. And that delay time is what now causes a lot of frustration for users in terms of communicating. Anyway, in a nutshell, so that's what you're building at Konza. And my work more often than not revolves around, number one, looking at uh, the service delivery of, of these data centers, number one, from construction, number two, from the value-added services that the customer requires. In this case, you're talking about whether it's PAS or other 
platform as a service, infrastructure as a service, or we go all the way to even software as a service. And then we go into now maintenance or what you call the day two service. What does the customer want? How can we deliver that? And then how can we retain that particular service level agreement as we go along? So yeah, it's it's a whole array of things just in one project that I could uh, that I could I could talk about. Yeah, that's quite elaborate. And I'm just tempted to ask, how, how long have you been involved as a channel manager? Um, I don't know where you're hitting with this. <laughs> but, uh, well, this is my second year now. I mean, uh, that is that's, uh, quite, quite, quite much information from two years of, of, of practice. But yeah, impressive, impressive. So, so the, question, the next question would be, how, how did you come to be involved in this? How would you say you found yourself in this, uh, being a channel manager? Um, number one, I don't think being a channel manager defines me just for the sake of the audience, right? Don't think of it as, as such uh, a defining thing that I am or whatever it is. Nonetheless, I think what you're asking, if I'm to stretch that question, is how did I transition from campus, in this case, to where I am right now? Would that be a fair treatment to that question? Yeah, in part. In part, Okay. But uh, yeah, feel 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 free to proceed as uh, as you as you wish. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go with that. I'll go with that for two reasons. One, I feel when we talk about purely channel management, it boxes me. And number two, if this is primarily an engineer's podcast, it it would only be fair for me also to give them a fair enough transition of of all those things. But anyway, I'm going to try to keep it short. Of course, number one, whenever I have to say this to anyone, especially people who are maybe not seeking but hearing a career advice from me, <laughs> I always tell them mine is a story of an outlier or a lucky break, I want to say. In this case, I was lucky on numerous occasions. Number one, Huawei started coming to campus just about the same time I was developing a lot of interest in, you could say, IoT and networking or taking that particular perspective. Number two, they also came at a time when I was getting more and more involved in leadership positions in extracurricular stuff. So in this case, campus societies, engineering programs and things like that back in school. And also, I feel that it was a serendipitous moment in the sense of they were looking for something that I was, let's say, ready or just about the right person to offer. When they were just coming to start doing this, when they were just rolling out their student programs, I already had some experience in you know, building campus ambassador programs. As a matter of fact, at that time, I had a startup that was running, um, let's say, internship programs for students and attachment programs for students. And so I built a network of different schools and students from across different campuses. And so Huawei, that was, I think, in uh, 2017, were just rolling out their student focus program. So of course, in response to me, the companies who had tried or were trying in that particular field. And so they come for a roadshow at my, my alma mater is Multimedia University. And so they come to Multimedia University doing a roadshow and all that. And um, of course, show up, show interest. In fact, helped to organize the whole event when, when I had that um, they needed some support and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, leads on, we form an academy in school. I become the leader of that academy. 2018, we become the top campus program. What was that called? ICT Academy. So Huawei, you know, just literally sprouted different ICT academies across different campuses across the across this country. And um, essentially to a student run, but faculty supported. And the idea was to train students in digital technologies. And especially at that time, the main program we're rolling out was the Huawei 
certified internet working associate i mean internet internet working associates in routing and switching so basically what we're doing here is trying to train interested techies on their basic foundations of routing and switching and how that especially works in the huawei ecosystem so 2018 we had the highest pass rate and of course not just highest pass rate in terms of quantity but also highest pass rate in terms of quality because i think we had like an 86% pass rate the exam is quite difficult even for an associate level exam number one and number two that most of our students or my i mean fellow students at that time hit the pass mark is 600 out of 1000 possible 1000 uh, but you know um, most of the team at that point was playing around 7 800 marks which was really for a new thing in the market and and all that was really impressive so we became the top campus in 2018 of course amongst other competitors as well and stuff like that and so um i mean got a call all right that was around now 20 perhaps early 2019 or something in my final year and so i get a call that there's this program that is for leading or inspiring <laughs> I feel like i'm not using the wrong terms here or adjectives <laughs> but there was this program that they were rolling out for uh, actually they had they already rolled it out in partnership with the ministry of ict and and other government i mean government parastatals trying to spot and nurture young digital talent it's called the seeds for the future program 2019 this is a program that was essentially picking out students from Kenya and other countries and sending them to China for training across different technologies so lucky break number number 2 I happened to be chosen for that. Of course someone else would would argue that wasn't a lucky break because I'd built already a portfolio and and results but remember I I mentioned three grounds for that luck earlier you know across the fact that it was a, the right I was you could say at the right place at the right time I mean someone who's now joining campus today cannot rely on that kind of luck they have to create some other you know different luck today. Nonetheless, 2019 joined the Seeds for the Future program, also joined Huawei as, as an intern and then this typically the internship should last 3 week I mean 3 months and so at the end of the 3 months my boss goes and say I mean I'd really like to extend your contract if you don't mind da 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 da, 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 da you know how it goes I, at that at that time I wasn't very appreciative of that fact because I felt like man 6 months again and and just interning come on guys and again at, at this particular time I was actually yeah, by the time I was by the time I was going for the for the second part of that internship I'd already graduated because so at the same time I was I was just going to be returning from the seeds for seeds for the future program. It goes on 3 months in, 6 months in and then just at the end of it another lucky break occurs here. My so my boss was big on me networking and me just helping out as much as possible whatever in fact at that time I was supporting one of our, big, our biggest cut of a project so we're doing a switch from let me just say our competitors networks and equipment to our equipment across the whole country for one major telco client and so it gave me a lot of exposure across project management across just delivery and service level management just quality course cost essentially it really stretched me and especially so because i also had to deal with subcontractor management acquisition and just monitoring and evaluation of the whole thing so at the end of my internship my my actually i think i closed on friday went home on that weekend and on sunday my boss calls me and asks me would you want to work in a different department and i'm thinking well i mean heck my internship just ended and here you are <laughs> 
asking about a different role now as an employee. I mean, I wouldn't mind, but what are we doing? So she says, well, it's it's in the enterprise department. Earlier, I was working in a, in, in purely career. In, we call it the network technology department. In the enterprise department, and you'll be doing pretty much something close to, if not more than what you were doing. So, I mean, let's do this. Sounds interesting. And so that's how I also got into 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 Huawei and as, as now an employee. And also that's when I began my first steps as a channel channel service manager. Yeah, so you could see it's it's basically a bunch of lucky breaks here and there. Of course, everyone says luck, luck favors a prepared mind. But I also say luck also means that there was adequate opportunity preparedness that was happening behind the scenes. You might not see it today. You might not even think it's happening. But whatever you're doing today as part of your habits or as part of what you want to do, inevitably is leading you somewhere. Whether for good or for bad, I can't tell, but definitely you know what you're trying to build, in, to build out for yourself. You have always been a man of wisdom. And I know that you are living, you are living <laughs> to that. Uh, great, great, great words. Yeah, let's go, let's go back a little bit on the transition. So at, 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 a, at some point, you mentioned something about you joining SEEDS. Mm. Would you talk a little bit about, about that program? Uh, how did it impact you? Did you gain a few things? Yeah, sure. So the Seeds for the Future program, as I mentioned, is Huawei's flagship um, sort of fellowship opportunity where they get different students from different countries. They convocate in China for about two weeks. And essentially, it's a complete immersion program. So you spend a week in Beijing for purely language and culture immersion into the Chinese way of life, their language, their practices, you know, their cuisine and all that. And then you spend the next week doing intense stuff in Shenzhen. Shenzhen is where the headquarters for headquarters for China are yeah you're doing intense classes oh even in Beijing they had classes language classes and Mandarin is Mandarin is, is a whole it's a whole other issue in Shenzhen we did a lot of now tech 5g base station configuration 4g and LTE protocol and networking then we did cloud we did we did a bit of IOT and all this was just compressed into a week of intensity pretty much I mean a typical day a typical day would look like waking up in the morning at around eight and taking a breakfast, you need to be in class by 8.30, and then the rest of the day is just classes, going to the lab in the afternoon and doing assignments, doing revision in the evening because you have an exam at the end of it. And the next day is just the same. And it's others you feel like, um, I mean, it, it helps that you, we, had, we had a bunch of friends, uh, especially even from different countries, but it was so intense. So we had people from Europe majorly who were picking master's students for this project. And, and it was so intimidating because now you're meeting guys who are doing master's tests in, in LTE and, and, and 5G networks, something that you've only had as a, as, as a fantasy or a theory by a mindful lecturer who mentioned, mentioned it as a passing thing in, 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 in back in class. And so, and, and so, I mean, it was, it, was, it was both a stretch and an inspiration to have to meet these people uh, and just and just see how diverse, let's say, our our education systems are in that regard. And so, at the end of it, it just it really stretches you to the 
amount of opportunity that is available, what you could do, what you might be able to do. And for me, that was definitely a good highlight in my career. The fact that um, I was able to, I was able to pick out what a different ecosystem is doing with the same technology that is possibly available to us. And especially, so I was able to appreciate that majorly because it was very, very practical. Practical Spending days in the lab dealing with real, but um, of course, real, but dummy equipment as opposed, and that are you know, in the industry, as opposed to dealing with oscilloscopes and oscillators in the in the in the in the normal laboratories that we have here back in school, I have nothing against that. I'm just saying, if we are trying to, <laughs> if we are trying, and I don't think academia should really be doing preparing you for the industry. This is contrary to public popular public opinion. I don't think academia is supposed to be preparing you for the industry. You're getting it wrong. Anyway, I'm going to talk about that later. The the Seeds for the Future program is actually what prepared me for, let's say. Um, the intensity that is the work that, let's say, a telecom or an, um, an IT engineer would have to go into or go through at the end of the day. Great, great, great to know that. Yeah, on the transition again, how long was this seeds for the future program? It was only two weeks. Okay. So, so, so you, you feel like you learned, you learned a lot in that program as opposed to your four years in campus, five years in campus. I can't say that. <laughs> what I learned, what I learned was diametrically different. I'm not trying to compare those two. Of course, it depends with you know the the focus. If it's with regards to industry preparedness, I learned a lot in those two weeks compared to my five years in campus. But also with regards to foundational engineering pro- pro- programs and 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 problems and you know requirements, I learned of course a lot more. There's no way I, I, they could pack that in, into in two weeks. So yeah. Okay. So, so, so one of the things that you mentioned again in your profile is uh, something to do with being a project manager. And, and, and there's a point you've mentioned about subcontractor management and acquisition. Are there challenges you faced in this? Are there, are there learnings you have on this? Hmm. Yeah, man. Um, I don't know about you. Well, most engineers, of course, are considered, I don't want to call you guys introverts or call us, like, <laughs> I don't want to call us introverts, but we are considered people who just want to Number one, be individual individual contributors in the sense of you just want to manage yourself and your work, not manage the people, which is really, I think, fulfilling, <laughs> if you'd ask me. But also, there's another side of, of, of things where now you have to manage how other people also deliver, especially if one person's delivery is the other person's input and so on and so forth. And so for me, purely, that wasn't, that wasn't really, I could say, an uncharted map for me, thanks to my extracurricular activities back in school and, and, and all that. But one thing I had to learn was how to, um, actually two things, number one, how to influence Rather, lead without influence. And number two, how to lead people who either have more qualifications or are generally older and more experienced than you are. How did I navigate that? Basically, by showing everyone the respect they deserve and should get. You know, they say, and I'm not disputing this, they say that do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. But I consider it in a different manner. How about you do unto others? as they would like to be done unto them. Because who told you that everyone actually wants to be treated as, I mean, as they treated you, right? Because some people are could be mean, some people could be unforgiving and cumbering and, and, and so on and so forth. But actually, that's not exactly also how they want to be treated. 
So the thing is, especially in the corporate space, do this with moderation, but treat others as really they would like to be treated. And of course, more often than not, this is with empathy. This is with a lot of professionalism and also a lot of, I would say, emotional intelligence. So there's a lot more that goes into navigating the workspace more than just what your technical skills bring on board. And trust me, those technical skills are very important, but it's not all that you will need. There is so much more in the toolbox of corporate growth that that we need to pick up as as engineers, young or old, and in trying to navigate that navigate that space. So for me, those major the major standouts were being able to lead without influence, especially because as a project manager, and in this case, an intern project manager you are not even allocated resources. You are supposed to work with the managers of those teams to allocate resources for you because you're, not, you're just managing how the project is supposed to run. And number two, being able to um, interact, interface, and sort of influence also people who are more experienced or more qualified than you are in, in particular um, tasks and aspects. I'm tempted to ask, is it possible to give us an example? With what objective in this case? I mean, with 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 the with the point on uh, leading with uh, influence. Oh, leading without influence. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, I think I could just tie that. It also you need to learn learn to work through people. But anyway, um, for your request about an an example. So basically, so say we have we have a project here where a customer wants a particular solution. In this case, you are assigned to deal with that customer and ensure that there is delivery as required by that customer. But then you go back and talk to your, say, the boss or whoever it is that is assigning that role or that work, knowing that you don't have the particular skill set or the fact that the project is very um, broad, that you can't fix everything, you know, by yourself. So you you go back to the boss and now you have to navigate how to get people. And then he tells you that you need to talk to, you know, the different resource managers here and there to maybe allocate your resources if possible. Only for you to go to those bosses and tell you all my people are busy whoever you get to talk to and they accept they agree to help you that's okay if not just understand that people are busy so you go to these people and of course you can't go to them with the narrative that you want you need of course you need the help but you can't go with that needy sense thing is and i always say this opportunities shy away from neediness all right. If you are showing yourself as too needy, opportunities will just shy away from you because opportunities want value. So you go to this person and say, okay, boss, we have a client here and they are talking about this kind of problem, which I've seen you or I think you've fixed in this particular manner. And I'd like us to work on it together. What do you think? And then they tell you, hey, man, I'm busy and, and this is just really crazy. And I'm telling, And then you tell them, well, yeah, that's perfectly okay. But look, there's an opportunity here for us to also build rapport with this client and who knows where this is going to go. We might even get bigger projects from them. We just need to get it right, these ones. So in this case, you don't really, you don't have the authority to say, pluck that guy from whatever project they are to put them in this project. But because you're able to align with what their values are or align with what their requirements are, then you're better able to meet at the middle and then proceed to a 
achieve in part what you wanted to achieve. And that's a win for you, right? So you don't really have influence in this case, but because you're able to accept yourself in a positive way and, and not in a way that bullshits them, honestly. It's just a way that actually brings out the value in what they you want them to do for them to also see where you're coming from and be able to pick to pick that up. So it's it's it varies. I can't say that it works for every other person because some people, of course, will just be difficult or again, objectively, some people also are really, really busy and they can't really help even if they wanted to. But the thing is also if they are willing to help but they can't because of different constraints, ask them to refer you to someone else. And this again varies from company to company because some companies, I'm sure, you are allocated all the resources you, all the resources you need as, as you go into a particular project. But sometimes if you have so many projects, then you have to figure out how to work with different people to actually get things going on. So yeah, it's I, I would say it's a case-by-case case kind of art that you need to know how to, what strokes to use with different scenarios. Yeah, opportunities shy away from neediness. And, and yeah, that's that's a great point to know. So with, with this project that you've had, is there a time that you have encountered a challenge where you might want to give up? Oh, I mean, that's, that's a daily thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the unfortunate thing about projects is the challenges every day. I mean, if there are no challenges, that's not a project. That's, I think, um, I don't know, it's... I don't know, man, but yeah, there are challenges every day. And yes, every day is just a reminder of why you are so unqualified. You know, speaking to all the imposter syndrome people out there, that um, it's just a reminder of why uh, you're so unqualified, but also a reminder of why you've been able to, you know, do so much. And still, this is also this this also shall shall come to pass. So for me, yes, there are, there are days when it's it's really tough. But then also depending on how your team is set up and 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 you know, just different variants at work, it it helps to it helps to know that again, varying with different team setups, it it helps to know that you have people who can be able to back you up and help you if you need their help and stuff like that with regards to different challenges that come up in the in the in the particular project you're working on. So that teamwork, that team structure, that that comrade spirit is is really useful in a workplace scenario, in my opinion. And 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 that just helps navigate. I know, I know, especially today, millennials and generation Z are all about oh, your colleague is not your friend and those kind of things. I mean, well, I, I understand. I, I totally appreciate, you know, work is work and your personal life is your personal life. But then there comes a time when you need to strike a balance. We can't live as though it's just black and white purely everywhere. It helps to know and to learn how to live with people. And, and for me, I think that's that's really important at the end of the day. An engineer solves problems. It looks like you are living by that every day. Yeah, and, and, and moving on, is there something else that Lumumba is doing? For example, are there part-time opportunities that you're pursuing? <laughs> when I call them part-time, it looks like my employer is not doing enough. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, no. friends, just to clear the air, my loyalty is... is, is Without question, but anyway, I'm deeply involved in. Uh, I number one, I go by the principle that my engineering or my knowledge or my skill set is supposed to impact those around me. So I I only I only use engineering as a tool. Really, it's not it's 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 nothing more than that. It's just if I'm not using it to solve a problem that I'm having or a problem that someone else is having, then it's it's really a useless tool that I'm carrying around. So um, I'm involved in different community projects, volunteer based, and see. 
actually, I think that's where I do a lot of more of my engineering, really, because there you are really coming from a blank slate. You don't have, let's say, a financial allocation to that project. Maybe neither do you have, like, let's say, a work breakdown structure for that for that for that project, or you don't have a specific client. I mean, no one is paying you for that. So you you are beginning from a blank slate, and you have to build structure out of it, and then eventually it has to work. Otherwise, you are wasting both your time and that community's time. I'm not saying it's bad to volunteer and fail. I'm just saying it's it's sad to do that. <laughs> and, and I don't think anyone really ventures out to go volunteer or do community projects with the intention to waste their time and the people he's trying to serve, he or she's trying to serve. So yeah, I involve myself in IT poly and I think it's important for me to mention that, well, this might not be the same for everyone, but I know you've been told time and time again that you should involve yourself in these extracurricular activities. But I'll tell you one more reason for you to do that. And hopefully this this is going to be more compelling. It is because, especially if you're looking to get a job, whether your own employment or someone else's employment, the best time to tarmac is while you are still in school. So for anyone who is going to be listening to this and they'll be still in campus, you are at the right time, the perfect and opportune time to be tarmacking. Why am I saying that? It's because as student people, or actually demonstrate to people that you are both a student, but someone who's thinking ahead by involving yourself in things that build your portfolio. Yes, your grades will give you a portfolio, but that's only, I don't even know who looks at those grades anymore. I mean, personally, I've never had to show my result to anyone. And mind you, they're really good, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just, I've never had to, I've never had to flip that anywhere. Maybe when I start applying for these master's programs, I might be, I might be asked to, to fish those out. But people will actually be very interested when you're perhaps interviewing with them and telling them how you are able to build something out while still in campus or you are able to help, you know, people best build, I mean, of your skills as an engineer, whether in class or out of class, I mean, whether learned in class or out of class, and you are able to actually build, I mean, move a needle for someone purely out of your technical prowess or techno-social ability. So, and that is what now I'm talking about when I say tamaking. I'm not saying now you should be tamaking in the in the in the in the principle of the word as as used in common lingua in Kenya. But I'm you're supposed to be tamaking smartly. Look, we are working smart, not working hard. So the idea here is you're looking to build your portfolio as a young and pretty much in a position where people consider you as set apart from other people. Because think about it this way, my friends. When you're in school and you show me things you've done for the community and especially that are tied to what you've been learning or been trying to pick up in terms of skills, I'm more inclined to want to talk to and even perhaps give you an opportunity knowing purely that you are able to do this because you've had that background despite your studies, despite the scenario that is campus, despite everything that is around that. As opposed to someone who comes to me purely because they were able to pass engineering school and now here they are with a glamorous certificate and let's say, I don't know, um, some convincing language to it. It's it's important for you, especially as engineers, you need to show, not tell, right? You need to be demonstrating. You need to actually be, treat your career as a lawyer would as well. You don't just want to argue without evidence. 
give evidence, let your evidence speak for itself. And I think that's really important because we are going through a curriculum that emphasizes more on, and without blaming them, emphasizes more on building your grades than really building your community nor building your portfolio as a person. And I think the earlier students learn that, the better it is for them because if you're waiting until after campus, they can now start looking at what projects you can do or until your final year that you can start looking at what projects you can do and so on and so forth. You are living by everyone else's timescale and that is just, you're, you're not separated in any particular kind of way or differentiated in any way. You need to either think ahead and you need to think fast and slow. What can I do that is going to give me an unfair advantage? And then think slow in the sense of, now, how do we do that? How do I involve myself? How do I um, build this? How do I solve this? How do I, and so on and so forth. Until that point when you see things start happening and growing that portfolio bit by bit. And it doesn't have to be like a whole national project building oh, a whole, um, uh, let's say, telecommunication network for, uh, for this country. It can be as simple as setting up a community network for your neighbors back in sharks who knows right and you might say that's an, not a needful project given my sharks my sharks scenario they don't probably need all that but well there's something that they need and i'm sure you know what it is and you can go on and find a way to solve that so there's no argument around what you could and what you couldn't do about it yeah the good thing about lumumba is that you give elaborate answers that actually kill potential questions <laughs> yeah but uh, even having said that we thank uh, god <laughs> Amen, amen. Yeah, so you've spoken about volunteering being of use, and you've mentioned actually being giving your time to at Poli, I'm assuming that's the Kenyan section. Would you say that uh, that experience has an impact on you as an engineer or you as a better human now that you have a job? Yes, 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 yes. Without batting an eyelid. Especially so because my paper last year at the IEK conference was purely based off my experience with IEEE. So I wrote a case study on um, humanitarian engineering, its need in the professional engineering space. And in that paper, I argued, or rather case study, I argued that um, having engineers also involved in humanitarian projects would be very useful for us to actually build a connection with our communities and who knows, develop homegrown solutions um, um, for our communities. Because think about it, when the moment you get into a corporate or enterprise scenario, you only have a corporate or enterprise mindset. In this case, we are working with enterprise tools to solve enterprise problems for enterprise rewards, right? And in that case, then we lose touch with actual our actual sense of community. And I think that's, that's also where we lose out on innovation, right? Because any innovator is a person who's identified a need in their community or in their surrounding they're able to do. Now, if you're only, say, prisoned into a corporate scenario where the, where the employer and the client define your problems and your solutions, then there is so much really left in terms of what you can do for the community. But then think of being able to involve engineers in, um, say, different volunteer projects. And I'm talking about volunteer projects in the sense of donating, you know, food stuff and equipment and masks and those kind of things for the community. Please let procurement guys do that. They're able to beat supply chains better. They're able to navigate all those thing, things better. Let engineers figure out a problem in Marsabit, for instance. There is insecurity there. Figure out how can we help these people live more secure lives. And I'm not going to talk about IoT in this case. Perhaps that could be a solution. I'm not. I'm not going to talk about uh, maybe um, <laughs> building walls. Maybe that could be a solution. I'm going to talk about surveillance. Maybe that could be a solution. But I'm just saying those are things that if we involve our engineers in or 
tried to push engineers towards that direction. We would not only come up with better ways of solving our own problems, but who knows, those could also be new sources of opportunity for enterprise, right? Because uh, uh, by by showing a real need in terms of solving that problem, then there's going to, there could be, that means there's an opportunity for funding to scale that project or scale that solution. Then we, we can go down south to Mombasa or the coast. And you're talking about the marine economy. You're talking about, you know, depletion of our coral reefs. And you're talking about issues just around around our coastal borders. Even insecurity is also another issue there. We also have an issue about connectivity. We have an issue, we are looking at things like offshore wind, wind, wind power. And, and I know, Newton, this is, this is an it develop simple, sustainable solutions that can power a small Makuti village down at the coast, a Michikenda sort of village down at the coast. I mean, who said just because they're living in the remote areas, they don't need grid connectivity or off-grid connectivity, right? Just move up with me towards Makueni, where I am currently, actually. And it's a hilly place. The only the, the, the only mistake, honestly, I would say people in the eastern part of Kenya uh, really did was to be born here. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's it's a bit dry, right? And 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 it's very contra or ironical because at the end of the day, when you look at the soil, it's very fertile. I mean, it's red loam soil and 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 it has a lot of potential. But look, these guys don't have water. Look, and and we know it rains even now. It is just raining very erratically in Kenya. I know there's a whole issue with climate change. But where is the water harvesting? Where is the irrigation solutions to go with that? Where is the water storage that, that would go with that and just be directed to these places? We always want to push these problems to the government, but you also have a tyranny of engineers who can come up with low-cost solutions if they were just, if they, number one, if they wanted to, and number two, if also they were pointed toward that, towards that direction. Then we move further to Nairobi, where I believe where you guys are at, and Nairobi has a litany of problems, you would say, from, uh, it's just, I'm talking about the, the things that maybe corporate world does not try to solve, littering. There's a lot of pollution, there's a lot of you could even say theft and 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 just robbery. Logistics is a whole issue with regards to the traffic jam and all that. And then there's a whole bunch of corporates there as well who have issues with their power consumption, utilities, and stuff like that. Then you just you deploy some, uh, you know, a battery of engineers to go do, let's say, what's it called, energy auditing for these farms, right? We have NGOs, we have even in Kibera, and, and just see what can we do in terms of honest, simple, but very elegant solutions that will give this is a path from point zero to point one, all right? And here we're looking at how are we able to use our engineering prowess to do something that is actually really meaningful for these guys. It's not enough, and I need to insist um, forth to these people. I mean, that saves them a week or two, but think about you being able to actually solve the problems for an entire year or two or three or four, right? And purely out of collecting a bunch of engineers once or twice a year and deploying them for actual problems, problem um, solution. Move with me further towards the West. There's a bunch of things again that come up here. Poor methods, an abundance of rain down there. Connectivity is another issue. Despite us having TV white space, despite us having community networks, you talk about you talk about logistics again uh, with regards to mapping and stuff like that, and you start looking at okay, fine. So how can we again as engineers deploy a very low cost, simple solution to 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 you know avert some of these problems? And you'd ask me where's the funding coming from, where are the people coming from, what's all that the logistics that comes into that, and that's saying paying. I mean no. Um, I'm not going to put IUK and EBK in this efforts and find this 
simple and local solutions. It just needs around maybe 10 engineers to be deploying student engineers who are going to be learning in that process and actually doing real stuff for the community as they build their own skill. At the end of the day, you have trained engineers, in this case, the student engineers over a six-month, let's say, period. And then you have these engineers who are consulting for them virtually or otherwise or on-site whenever they have time. It's a win-win both for the engineer who's building talent, for the engineers who are training up, and for the community which is learning. And we are spending close to zero because we've figured out what is a simple low-cost solution for that particular problem. And I want to to say we can solve all problems i'm just saying we have problems at home that need to be solved yet you're wasting that potential in our in our lives as though we don't live in these communities lumba you, you you you're quite you're quite a resource picking from what you even pointing out is that there's an element of knowing where the problem i mean how the uh, knowing the problem exists and, and 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 finding solutions to it it's a skill actually so yeah we can continue on and on but as, as as we wind up, could could you give us an example of, of a project that you have had the ideas that you mentioned put to place? Maybe something you've done with IEEE, maybe you've identified a project, you have pursued it to its conclusion, you obtained some funding. <laughs> That's a compelling question and in a very particular direction. But um, I'm going to talk about the Mampod project. It's 20... 21 quarter four late late 2021 around october november and i i i happened to visit my mother who was who's who's a medical worker and 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 she's just you know she was deployed to kakamega and so and so we're having this chit chat and she tells me how women in uh, in rural africa and even urban africa especially mothers who have little babies find it difficult to sustain breastfeeding their kids in this case the who recommends that every baby should be breastfe- breastfed for at least 6 months exclusively nothing else no water no porridge no formula no anything just breast milk and and um, eventually what this does is it gives the baby a better chance of life that means being able to celebrate the fifth birthday number 2 it gives the mom defense against any issues you know number 1 the weight gain apparently it also helps with this this is all certified by who by the way with any um, other optimistic issues that could come up with with her. And also, it just gives the baby a birth and mental growth um, as they grow up because the colostrum in the milk has been that now um, they're forced in laws to start giving the babies, you know, milk. Some cultures, apparently, colostrum is, the fact that it's yellowish is is a whole issue and so they say it's not good for the baby. And then all the way to, for instance, if you go up north to Marsabit, I have a friend there who says that it's a taboo for women to be seen breastfeeding their babies in the public, yeah, their breasts out and stuff like that. And then you come now to the urban setting where the work-life balance cannot just allow you to, let's say, breastfeed your baby for those six months exclusively. And number two, the fact that it's not even thought about that we have these people in our, in our society, that a mother who's breastfeeding, so technically, <laughs> now that I'm dealing with boys here or men, let me just do quick, uh, in a very quick sense what happens in this. So um, if, you're, if you're not able to like walk around your baby every time, in a, still your breasts swell up with milk. And this becomes really uncomfortable for the, for the mother because, I mean, it's, think about it like your your bladder filling up with in this case this is the wrong example but your bladder being filled up and and it definitely needs to be released so it's the same feeling sensation in, in, in that sense and so of course they have to express that milk so what they do is perhaps they might need to find some some place private but you know we don't have any of these private spaces anywhere or rather at least an abundance of those 
So they normally have to walk into washrooms to do that or to find a store somewhere at the workplace to do that. That is such a shameful way to have them express what nature has essentially given them as a duty, right? And especially when you think about it, that your mom perhaps had to go through this just to keep you breastfed or that anyone's mom has to go through this just to keep their baby breastfed. Anyway, so we move on and 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 my mom asks, what could we do? And my engineering mind tinkers and we just say, maybe you can just build some structures for moms to walk into us and maybe breastfeed or express the milk if need be store the milk there and when they go back to the babies they can they can give the babies the milk and in that sense be able to maintain the six months rather sustain the six months as well as balance the other aspects of their lives so yeah so that's what we, we did a pilot for that um the response has been massive so far we we put it in a how a place of work actually and the mothers there are loving it they feel seen they feel hard even though no one really was speaking for them anywhere at that time and they just feel it's speaking to a need that was never really isolated and and, and addressed and even to that it's it's something that i'm trying to now see what could be done in terms of moving now from that point to another point on next potential place that would make a good use of this and how can we reach out that place and make it happen so that's i could say that's the current project on my hands that is sort of close to my heart <laughs> Especially so because I like to say that, I like to say two things. Number one, that we need to give babies back their lunch. Number one. Number two, that the world works today because we are all beneficiaries of breastfeeding. So there's no point in us trying to deny the next generation of babies to be breastfed just because we are living in a crazy capitalistic world that demands mothers to forfeit their motherly roles for corporate roles. Well, great an answer. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely wish to to have you back. A great conversation. Thanks for having me, um, Newton. Okay, happy to have spent said 50 minutes <laughs> with you guys. It was a pleasure, man. Yeah, yeah. And thank you. And 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 I love the work you're doing, man. This is this is brilliant. Um, I hope you can move to a hundred and plus episodes. Yeah, thanks, thanks. We'll definitely want to host you again. Much wisdom. A lot, a lot that you mentioned actually. Thanks, bro. I appreciate it. It's life. <laughs> and and God, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. All right. Cheers. Take care. Take care too. Hi, this is the Okello behind the scenes. You may remember me as the featured guest of episode one, but I also serve as the producer and editor of this podcast, Mohandesi the Engineers Podcast. We are grateful to have had Ivan Lumumba as a guest. And before the episode comes to an end, I'd like to take a couple of minutes to reflect on some of my highlights from the conversation. My first highlight would be when Lumumba pointed out that being a channel manager doesn't necessarily define him. I took this to mean that his position is part of a whole, which I'll expound on in a later highlight. The second highlight is what I'd call the case of luck meeting preparedness that he talks about as his lucky breaks that played a role in his transition from campus into Huawei. The third highlight was his overcoming some of his workplace challenges by learning to lead without influence. Part of this is remembering that opportunities shy away from neediness and when seeking out assistance, be assertive in a positive way while also being clear on the value that the assistance you are seeking would add. And another point on this was rather than treating others how you would want to be treated, 
treat others how they would want to be treated. My final highlight would be the other psalm that makes part of the whole that is Lumumba, his use of engineering for solving humanitarian causes. There were a lot of interesting ideas here, but I'll limit myself to the MumPod project that he conceptualized after his mom came with a problem that she had seen in the community. The aim of the project is basically to give dignity to mothers who have had newborns and needed a space, a safe space, and a dignified way to express milk when they were away from the babies. And in the long run, let's say also trying giving the dignity back to the mothers, but also trying to improve the health of the babies. Those were my highlights, but there were a lot of interesting points brought out in the conversation. And I'm kind of curious, what were yours? As a final note, I'd just like to state that we have a LinkedIn page for the podcast. The link to it will be included in the show notes. But if you search for Muhandisi, the engineer's podcast, you should be able to find it. It's a pretty unique name. It could be a space to talk more on the episodes that we'll be hosting or posting. And we might also share short clips from episodes every once in a while. It could also be an avenue to get feedback and help us improve. So I'd encourage you to join and do share the episode with a friend if you find value in these conversations. Thank you. And now let's segue into the outro. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode and for that, we want to say a big thank you. Remember that you can listen to Mkandisi, the engineer's podcast, anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And please leave us a review whenever you listen. Thanks again, and see you next time.